Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some free money. It's very easy to do. To download the Stitcher app, just go to Stitcher.com or the App Store. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, when it asks you, how did you hear about this app? Enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. That's all it takes. The latest episode of this show will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content Always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at Stitcher.com or in the App Store free of charge. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, you name it. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is fundamentally auditory. This is what you listen to while mall walking. My guest today is Catherine Chung. Her debut novel, Forgotten Country, is now available from Riverhead Books, and it is one of the most auspicious debuts of the spring, having received multiple starred reviews and multiple gushing blurbs. And uh, there are a lot of bloggers palpitating in the blogosphere about this book, and there's a lot of buzz happening around it. Uh, and its Amazon ranking is improving by the second. So Catherine and I are going to be talking about all kinds of things in just a moment. Before we begin, uh, I want to discuss the man with the bullwhip that I saw earlier today. I, uh, I went for a walk in the park, as I sometimes do, and there was a man with a bullwhip in the park, and he appeared to be rehearsing something in the grass, which I should say is not entirely uncommon here in Los Angeles. 
uh, to see people rehearsing, uh, reading lines, singing a song. And so perhaps <clears throat> this man was rehearsing for a stage play or a movie or a music video. Uh, but the point is he was cracking a bullwhip and dancing and then cracking the bullwhip and then dancing some more. And the reason I mention it uh, is because it's the first time I've ever seen anyone do that in public, ever. That particular combination. Dancing with a bullwhip, alone, in a park. And I guess I just wanted to acknowledge that here on the air. Uh, so kudos to that gentleman. And it also does remind me of the time uh, that I went to Las Vegas for Halloween in my youth many, many years ago and dressed up as Indiana Jones. So this was one of the few Halloweens in my adult life uh, where I actually had a good costume. You know, under normal circumstances, for whatever reason, I can never get my act together at Halloween. I'm not one of those adults who gets really into Halloween. I'm just not. Uh, like, as many of you probably know, I'm not a holiday person in any form. Uh, you know, and so I'm always kind of scrambling to find a costume on the day of, or I'm bailing on it altogether, which is, you know, usually the case. But on this occasion, I had a really good costume, and I think I actually rented the jacket and the hat and the bullwhip uh, at a costume shop. You know, it just really went all out that year. And what I learned that night is that it's not a good idea uh, to get drunk and start cracking a bullwhip in a casino when you win money at blackjack. Uh, this is generally frowned upon. The pit bosses don't like it. Casino employees don't like it. Uh, other casino guests tend to be lukewarm, and casino officials will uh, eventually confiscate your bullwhip, and they will not return it, even if you're dressed up like Indiana Jones. So, lesson learned there. What else? Uh, I've been working a lot, uh, as usual, multiple projects simultaneously, one of which is this novel uh, that I keep talking about on this program. That continues to happen. It continues to vex me, uh, which is a recurring theme at this point. But uh, the good news is that I think I have solved a big problem, at least for now. And I've decided uh, that the book requires multiple narrators. That, that is the solution, I think, uh, to my conundrum. I had been writing the book with just a single narrator, uh, and then I hit some sort of monstrous, uh, monstrous psychic wall at the 35,000 word mark, which I talked about on a previous episode of this show. And now I'm moving again, uh, making forward progress, and I'm, I'm uh, telling the thing in first-person, multiple-vision POV. So I think this is good. I'm cautiously optimistic, but of course now I have three times as much work as I thought I did because I've got to write these other sections from these other perspectives uh, and invent these entirely new characters and uh, you know these entirely new narrators. So it's an unwieldy process, and I feel like I'm on some sort of tightrope, and I don't really know what I'm doing, and I'm just making it up as I go, which I guess is what I'm supposed to be doing, more or less. And, you know, the, the book is possibly a little bit funny, but it's not as funny as I thought it was going to be, which, which does concern me a bit. Uh, but maybe that's okay, you know? It, it, it's kind of a nightmare uh, trying to figure all of this out. But, of course, that's the nature of this pursuit, and anyone who tells you otherwise is a vicious and terrible liar. Uh, actually, though, it's not. It's not a nightmare. It's a good problem to have, right? It's a privilege to be able to have this problem. I know that. I need to remember that. And uh, before I get on with the program, uh, I thought I would read to you 
some actual recurring nightmares from actual readers uh, over at the Nervous Breakdown, which is, again, my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, as many of you probably know, the Nervous Breakdown has a Facebook presence, and every morning, first thing, we issue a three-word writing prompt that begins with the phrase, in exactly three words. It's just a little thing that we do. I don't even know why we do it. We started it years ago, and it continues daily. And so the other day, uh, the prompt was, quote, in exactly three words, please describe your recurring nightmare. And so these were the responses. Did not study. President Rick Santorum. Not gonna happen. No more books. George W. Bush. Everyone's a robot. Exploding zombie apocalypse. No way out. Being stuck here. Ocean swallows me. More high school. Allergic to alcohol. Having no dreams. Curious Jack Nicholson. Form rejection letter. No more teeth. Eaten by whale. Santorum Palin, 2012. Nothing ever changes. X is paroled. Going to work. Wedding day regret. Can't help mom. Crow. Wolf. House. Plummeting towards death. Gravel roads lost. No more food. I'm at work. Family of aliens. Endless boring mediocrity. Unavoidable bartending disasters. In a tornado. Getting horrible haircut. Slow motion threat. Mother-in-law. So, there you have it, folks. There are some real, uh, actual recurring nightmares reduced to three words. So, uh, having said that, let us now transition elegantly to the main event and my conversation with Catherine Chung, the very gifted author of the new novel, Forgotten Country. My father was a professor in computer science, oh, and, but his computer science was, was actually very theoretical. And there's a place at which um, math and computer science converges. So really theoretical computer science, um, when I was in college, could be cross-listed as both math and computer science. Okay. Cause like, there are various, yeah. Well, but traditionally, like when, when you talk about like creative people and people who are interested in uh, books and literature, that you know, it, it always tends to be the case where uh, they sucked at math and science in school, and then they were, you know, drawn towards uh, books and maybe history and that sort of thing. But like, you seem to have both, and I'm curious to know how, um, you know, your understanding of math and your study of it uh, affects things like structure, for example, in in your uh, creative work. Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, I know that there are writers out there who have who have done math. Um, and computer science, but in terms of how studying math affects my own writing, uh, I guess I would say, I guess I would say that structurally, not so much. But on the language level, I I, I think more about um, not I think I think more about clarity and uh, precision. I think because I studied math than I would have otherwise. I mean, do you, that do that you... sort of. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, do you outline? Like when I think of somebody who's like got a mathematical brain and can operate at that level, like I'm, I'm, I'm imagining you like preconceiving the architecture of your. Oh, 
no, 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 no. I, I probably have one of the messier minds. Um, and I, I begin to suspect that the mathematical mind that you imagine, um, in my head is, is not, is not at all the mind that I have. I, even when I was doing math, um, I would jump into it sort of on a purely intuitive level and I would play around and things would be really messy. And then I would try to sort of distill and distill and distill an idea, um, until I, I felt like I was going in the right direction. And that actually is, is very similar to my writing process. My sort of math doing process was very similar. Uh, but it was not organized up front. It was not structured. And um, when I was talking to you about theoretical computer science, I think the thing with theoretical math is it's not structured in the way that, or it doesn't, the study of it doesn't feel structured in the way that the study of high school math felt. Uh, right. which is probably why I did not like math in high school, but then I loved it in college. So there's like, yeah, I mean, there, there's a level at which mathematics becomes creative. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which, and which... and is exploratory. Yeah. If you think about how, um, you know how you write like the five paragraph essay in high school and it doesn't feel creative? Yeah. And then, then you then you start talking to people about books uh, or you start having these long conversations about books and it suddenly opens everything out and it becomes incredibly creative and exciting. I feel like that can happen in math and it just doesn't happen uh, for everyone because most of us keep up on math yeah, pretty early on. I never got to that level. I never got to the level where math got anywhere near being creative, you know. Uh, I always, yeah, just, I always yeah. felt like it was just memorization of formulas or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a point at which I think people can feel about literature that way, right? When they're trying to analyze and they're saying, this is a symbol of that. And there are people who believe that that's all poetry has to offer, right? That a sunrise is a symbol of hope or, you know, a leaf is a symbol of life. And uh, if that's as far as you get, it's, it doesn't feel creative. It feels canned. Right, right, right. So when you talk about uh, the similarities between uh, your approach to mathematics and then your, your approach to writing, uh, like tell me a little bit about your creative process. Like do you, do you start, it sounds like you start with like a, you know, a really loose early draft and then you sort of refine it uh, kind of obsessively from there. Are you somebody who just like sits down and permits yourself to write uh, like in a really wide open way early on, or are, you know, how exacting are you? Like, this is always an interesting question to me because it feels like such a delicate balancing act between, uh, permissiveness and allowing yourself creative freedom, but also, uh, trying not to let yourself write lazy, you know, that, that, that's. So yeah. Yeah. I really like your word permit. I've never actually heard it used before the idea of permission, um, and letting yourself go. I, I think the reason I like that word is because it sounds so intentional and the beginning of the process to me doesn't, doesn't totally feel intentional. It feels more compulsive somehow. So usually I start with an idea uh, or a few ideas and I don't know how they relate and I sit down and I start writing and I have no idea usually where it's going or, or sometimes I have the wrong idea of where it's going. And I, it's not so much that I let myself write that way. I, it's that I know no other way to write. Um, so I sit down and I start writing and usually I come up with a big mess of junk and then I start looking for the narrative arc or I start looking for the through arc or the repeating themes or the repeating ideas and and then it feels kind of like hunting for treasure, I guess. You, you look for this, this stuff that's meaningful and then I... Yeah, and then I, I start to sort of become more exacting in the 
in the redrafting and the revision. So how many, so how many drafts did, uh, you know, do you usually go through? Like how how many, Um, how many drafts did forgotten country go through just as like the primary example, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So part of my process is that it's so messy that I, I can't actually always distinguish between drafts. But if it helps, I would say I threw away at least, you know, it's a 300-page book, and I would say I threw away at least six or 700 pages. Holy shit, that's a lot. Yeah. Okay. And so how long did it take you to write it? <laughs> it took me a long time. It took four years, maybe, five years. Okay, wow, okay. And then when, okay, and then the, when did you feel like uh, you knew you were done? Like this is a moment that not uh, you know that doesn't get a lot of uh, discussion I find, but like it's a it's an interesting question. You know, like when do you walk away? Like, do you remember feeling at a certain point like, okay, that's it, it's all done, or did you sort of have to force yourself to let it go? <laughs> oh, you know, I think that when you feel done is the moment when you force yourself to let it go. <laughs> yeah. So I remember. I actually remember exactly when I knew that I was close to done, which I guess. But you know, I knew the moment when I knew I was done, actually. I I knew there was like a little bit of cleanup work and I knew that I would have to polish, but the moment that I think of when I think of being done is when I knew that the structural work had all been taken care of, that all the scenes were in place, that I might clean things up, but that the book was essentially itself. And that happened very late in the process. It it didn't happen until after I had sold the book. Um, So the major, like, you know, I did some major work after I sold the book and I was I was actually crashing with my brother in Colorado, and I was working um, every day while he was at work, and I remember very clearly starting to feel like everything was finally beginning to click into place, and, and I added one scene that I had sort of been resisting writing for a long time and didn't know that I'd been resisting writing it for a long time, and when I wrote that scene... I felt finished and, you know, the, the forcing yourself to let it go, it's, I think, you know, when you're done with a book or I think I knew I was done with a book because I felt that I could keep changing it or, you know, I could keep fiddling with it or I could keep finding, finding things that I, I wanted to change, but that I wouldn't learn anything from those changes anymore. Like I, I felt like the book and I had taken each other as far as we could. Right. Does that make yeah, and, it's, it's sort, yeah, of, I mean, it's, it's sort of an organic process. It's like, you know, it, I don't know. It's, it's probably uh, not often discussed because it's really hard to define simply. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I felt like, you know, I could keep changing it and, and maybe I could make it better, but maybe also I would just be changing it at that point. And I also thought, yeah, like I won't, I won't learn anything um, by being in this book anymore. Well, but the other thing too is that you could also screw it up. I mean, that's what I always think too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's I like, felt that. Yeah, there's yeah. like the danger, and this is, it's very delicate. Like, there's the danger of making uh, a creative project overwrought by, like, obsessively fiddling with it. And right, right, you, right. You or want... you could just change it into an entirely different project. Yeah, yeah. And so you yeah. wonder, you wonder sometimes, like, how many great books have been lost to that sort of neurosis? You know? <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I noticed at some point I would make changes, I mean, after the feeling finished point, but the polishing point, in the polishing process, I realized I would make changes, and then in the next version, I would just change everything back, but I wouldn't even know that I was changing everything back because I wouldn't remember, but then I would look at an earlier part and be like, oh, I just totally changed that back. And that's when it feels really 
like you have to stop and step away. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. And then the other thing that you said that really strikes me is the, um, uh, you know, coming to this understanding, uh, I, I think this is what you said, like coming to this understanding of, uh, what the themes are at work and how they all fit together late in the process. Yeah. Like, you know, it, I think, yeah. I think sometimes when people, uh, imagine writing a novel, uh, they imagine starting with theme and like having some grand idea. And I guess some books do start that way, but more often than not, I think theme comes late. It's almost like you figure out what your book is about as the writer of it. Uh, when the thing is almost done or you're in like the, a late stage of it. Does that ring true to you with this book? That's, that's exactly what it felt like to me. And, you know, when I, when I teach students, I've noticed that it's often the case for them as well. I mean, I, I feel like the book or your writing tells you what it's doing um, and that you just kind of have to follow it right. and, and, and pay attention. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's weird that you would spend that much time. You can spend like four years on something. And at the end of the fourth year, you can <laughs> finally figure out what it is that you're trying to say. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's super, it's super interesting. Um, and it feels like most things in life that way though. Don't, don't you think? Like I, I feel like you often don't realize, um, I think you often don't realize, I don't know. I think you often don't realize what you're doing until after you're almost finished like that things don't click until you've already kind of mastered it right yeah or or sometimes it doesn't click until years you know years later you don't have any person yeah yeah yeah. or years later yeah I felt this way when I was a student as well I, I felt often that you know the material we were covering in class I didn't really understand until a semester later and I was like oh that's what we were doing. Well, no, this is like, this goes like, this is part of my worldview. Like my basic worldview is that, uh, life is a never ending process of realizing what an asshole you were three years ago. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I say that sort of uh, tongue in cheek, but I think it's true. And like, all I do is look back on myself like three years ago and I'm like, God, I can't believe what an idiot I was. And then the, yeah. the but the problem with that theory is that that means I'm being an idiot right now. And three years from now, yeah, I yeah. realize it. So you know, I think yeah. just, I'm saying yes because I, I totally relate, yeah. not because I'm like, yes, you are an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yes, Brad, you are definitely being an asshole right this minute. Uh, no, 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 no. But yeah, I feel that way constantly as well. Yeah, no, it's like, you know, it's sort of like the part of the bittersweetness of, uh, of existence, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I guess the next thing that I would ask you uh, that strikes me about this book is, uh, you know, the, as far as themes go, uh, is is your fascination with siblings. And one of the things that, uh, that strikes me, or one of the things that I want to ask you about is uh, sisterhood versus brotherhood, because this book is about the relationship between two sisters, uh, primarily the complexity of that, um, yeah. you know, within the, within the family. And, you know, sisterhood versus brotherhood, like that particular question springs to mind. And, uh, you know, I think that there you know, there, there might be more intimacy, you know, intimacy and intensity to sisterly relationships than there are between say sisters and brothers or brothers and brothers. And I, I, I say that from, you know, from personal experience because my, I have two sisters and, uh, uh -huh. they're born on the same day, seven years apart. Uh, which, Holy cow. yeah, which strikes me as like sort of like a cosmic, uh, oddity. And then you yeah. know, they have a, uh, a very close relationship, but there's also a lot of intensity to it. And I've always, you know, I've always sort of like conveniently and uh, tidily, um, you know, attributed that to the fact that they're born on the same day. But I don't think uh -huh. that, I think that's sort of uh, I think that's sort of the case with most sisters. I mean, can you talk Perfect. a bit about that? Yeah, you know, I don't actually have a sister. 
um, I have a brother. And I, I think part of the reason why I chose two sisters as my characters is because of the thing that you talk about, which is there is an intensity to their relationship um, that, and an intimacy. And, and also, I feel like a... I don't. I, I feel like there are different kinds of complexities in relationships between sisters than in relationships between brothers and sisters. Um, like my brother and I, my brother and I get get along for the most part and really like each other. But I, I don't feel like we're always up in each other's business in the way that sisters can be, and that you know, women and women can often be so intimate and take things so personally and be. Do you know? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, like, oh. that, that way in which, yeah. And so... I, <laughs> no, I was just going to so say, was, like, my sisters like uh, my sisters have a relationship that I have no access to. Like, I, I'm just kind of the brother, and, like, I show up, and we talk, and, like, they're they're speaking... Right, like, and oh. they, like, adore you, and it's really... I mean, I, I feel like that's my relationship with my brother. Like, I adore him, and, you know, he puts up with me, um, and that... You know, we're involved in each other's lives, but nowhere, like, not in the way that sisters are involved in each other's lives. Um, and so, so I was, I was actually fascinated by that. And um, when I was writing about sisters, I was also trying, you know, in some way to develop a relationship that in my mind um, <clears throat> echoed or resonated with or was related to the relationship between North and South Korea, between the two Koreas, because that seems to me kind of like a relationship between sisters, right, in the, in the way that they're at war with each other, but in the way that there is also this, this lost closeness. I mean, it seemed like siblinghood. Yeah, no, that's, I, didn't, somehow. I, I hadn't thought of that, but that, yeah, that's totally true. And it's like, I don't know, it's a deep bond, and there can be all this conflict. I mean, it happens in families all the time where there's conflict uh, or there's trauma or there's both, and... Uh, I don't know. You know, blood is what is the old saying? Like blood is thicker than water, and uh, right. you can try right. to you can try to deny, and you can try to um, you know pretend that things aren't what they actually are. But w- when it comes down to it, uh, you know, a bond is sort of unbreakable. Right, right. And if you break it, you break it at this tremendous cost to yourself. Um, yeah, you can't like, you can't yeah. run, you can't run away. Like that's this is the thing because right. like I have friends who have really difficult family lives. Uh, you know, it. it it happens all the time, but yeah, you can't get away from it. There's no, there's absolutely no way to to run away from it. I mean, you sometimes it's necessary to separate, and I, you know, I'm not right. saying that that you have to, right. you know, bunk, you know, um, hunker down with your, you know, with a family situation that's not, um, that's not good. Yeah, it's yeah. not healthy. But like, there's just absolutely yeah. no way to completely remove yourself. And I think when you do right, that, right. like you say, like when you do that, you wind up doing it at a tremendous cost, and it winds up harming you actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so too. And when I think of um, when I think of Korea, I think you know, for whatever reason, that happened. You know, on on this meta level, right? But if you think about how it broke families apart, where there are siblings who have lived on either side of the border and never seen each other again, it's this tremendous sort of national cost. I think not national, but you know, the other now two nations. But it's this tremendous cost that that has that has affected all these individuals but also this country well and no i know this this brings to mind uh the story of your of your aunt you know i was reading about this how uh you know you have an aunt that you didn't even know existed until 40 years after she was kidnapped uh in seoul yeah. and so you know can you talk a little bit about that because to be honest like i have a rough idea 
or a rough understanding of the history of Korea and the two Koreas and, you know, all of its, uh, you know, everything that happened post-World War II uh, and, and that sort of thing. But I wasn't aware of uh, a lot of what you talk about with regard to, uh, you know, how these families were split up and why they carried uh, these secrets the way that they did. You know, the politics of it and, and why it was necessary to sort of bear that burden quietly. Yeah, so my dad actually had a, a sister um, who was kidnapped when, well, actually, so my dad had a sister who disappeared when she was in college, and girls had been kidnapped, girls had been being kidnapped by the North Koreans, um, not just girls, actually, people had, you know, the North Koreans had been kidnapping people, but they had also been kidnapping girls out of out of a dorm, um, which is what happened one night in the dorm that my aunt lived in and she just disappeared and I don't know that much about it actually even even though I found out that she had existed and she had written a she wrote a letter uh, when I was in high school or college that some cousins in China got and then you know the whole family found out sort of what had happened to her how she had ended up um, in North Korea and how she had lived her whole life there um, but even after all of this was discovered, it wasn't something that we really talked about. And I kind of had to go digging for information. And even then there wasn't a lot to be had. But what I discovered in the digging, I guess, was that it was incredibly, it was incredibly uncomfortable um, and fraught to talk about this disappearance. Um, And, you know, I did some research, and what I discovered is that it, it was it was very bad. In I think on either side to acknowledge your relatives um, or your family members because the country was at war, um, and and you could be punished. You could be punished for acknowledging that you had people over there, um, and also also the people you know, in the North could be used against you in some way, right? Like you could be blackmailed um, or they could be threatened or uh, just all these, there were all these terrible consequences that I think to a lesser degree are still at play now. And so it was just really terrifying and people didn't speak for fear of harming their loved ones or, you know, for fear of harming themselves. And so it was just this really astonishing thing for me as a, as a child, I guess, you know, who grew up in America feeling very safe to discover that there was this part of my history that I knew nothing about. Well, yeah. I mean, like in the, the, the question that kind of comes to mind for me is they were, they were just coming over and kidnapping women specifically. Is that what was happening? They were kidnapping people, but they, yeah, there were, I mean, there were raids on dorms where they kidnapped women specifically. Why? I mean, like, they they were just, they just needed people? Like, we don't have enough people? Like, what's, I don't understand. You know, I don't know that, I don't really know, but I think that partly it was a psychological terror tactic, right? Um, I mean, (laughs) why would they come over and kill people, right? It's, I mean, it's it's war. So I think partly it was, and, you know, in war, terrible things happen to women all the time. Um, And the, I feel like the why is a question that you could beat your head against and, and never, ever, ever come up with an answer, right? It's it's not, war isn't logical, it's not rational, um, and civil war in particular is is, is often so so brutal. Yeah, it's, um, those are like often, the, you know, those tend to be the bloodiest wars and the, the ones where the, the worst stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... You think they would be kinder, like a little bit kinder, but I guess there's no such thing, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I I I've, I've thought about that sometimes, like why they're why they're the bloodiest or why they're the most intense. Um, and I think it's because of the thing that you were talking about. You can't really cut ties with your family without doing this incredible damage to to yourself and each other. But if you're in the act of trying to make that break, it it makes sense that it will get kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's like you know, your book deals uh, with the disappearance. Uh, of the younger of a younger sister, you know, the younger sister Hannah goes missing, and that's yeah. sort of, that's sort of like the uh, you know the central mystery of the book or the trauma that you know that affects this family in addition to uh, uh, the father's illness, and so you know it bring it brings to mind like when trauma affects uh, a family, uh, I you know in my experience it tends to either bring them closer uh, or it drives them apart. You know, like it, I, I'm fascinated with why some families tend to come together when something really bad happens, uh, whether it's a death or, you know, an accident or whatever it is. And then other fami- yeah. other families just sort of uh, fragment. And, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in why that happens, you know, why it happens one way or the other. And like, you know, in the writing of this book, did you learn anything about that? Um. Maybe. I'm interested in that, too, actually. I think that was something I was thinking about when I was writing this book. Um, And I think one of the reasons that families fragment or split apart or why that distance, right, between them grows when something really traumatic or terrible happens is because I think... I think that it has often to do with a feeling of maybe isolation or disconnection that that happens after something terrible. And I, and I think in, in my book, right, part of the reason that these characters feel disconnected from each other is because they're keeping secrets from each other. They're not always being honest with each other and they're hiding things um, from each other and themselves. Right. So they, they prefer not to address and in some cases are not able to, or allowed to address the, the, the sort of, fundamental tragedy um, in their lives. And I, I think that will, I think that feeling of disconnection will drive you away from people. And it's incredibly painful when it's, when it's um, between family members, right, who are so close. And yeah, I mean, I can see that with like the weight of a secret causing that feeling of or the weight of secrets causing dis- a feeling of disconnection. But like another part of it that I think uh, plays a role sometimes is, you know, when, when something bad happens in a family, uh, the, the, I think that the parent figure or the parents, uh, they tend to drive, you know, how things go, you know, right. I mean, they're the the ones who are most responsible. They set, they, they set the tone usually. And, I don't know. That's how I've, I mean, I'm a father now. So like, I kind of always like, you know, right, right, right. And I think what's, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I don't obsess about this stuff, like, you know, uh, you know, too much. But I sometimes think, like, okay, now, you know, now I'm responsible. If something bad were to happen, I have to make sure I have my shit together so that, um, you know, uh, my my child knows that, um, you know. That it's okay. Uh, yeah, or, that, or maybe it's not okay, but that at least that I've got my, my act together and that we're going to, yeah. that we're going to make it through. And I, I take that yeah. responsibility seriously. I think there's something about maintaining composure and setting an example by your own behavior. That's really important because if you, if you don't, uh, you know, kids are so sensitive and it will right. mess right. with them. Right. No, nothing's more traumatic than seeing like a parent lose it. <laughs> for a yeah, 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 yeah. 
I totally agree. And I think that um, part of what my book was trying to address was what do you do when, as the parent, you lose that, you lose a certain amount of control, right? Because because if you step out one level from that, right, when your country is falling apart um, or there's war or people are being killed or kidnapped, um, the your capacity to have your shit together is, is tested. Right. Yes. Yeah. And when, yeah. And so, but, but also, right. Like my family has, has sort of moved beyond that, right. Like they've, they've moved to America. They, you know, like the Korean war was a long time ago and all of this stuff, but I was interested in how, like how that, break, like the, the break that happens, you know, like 50 years ago, or even a hundred years ago, like how that can carry through generations, right? Like, because it's, I feel like sometimes you carry trauma no, in a no. certain kind of way. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I, you know, like I, I, I've always said that, like, you know, I feel the most, I have, I feel the greatest sense of ethnicity on my father's side because my grandfather on my, on my dad's side, uh, still felt a little Italian, you know, and still like em- uh-huh. embraced that part of himself and, you know, he and his brothers were butchers and they had a butcher shop. I mean, it was like, it was Italian, you know, and, and, uh, uh-huh. you know, there's something about, and so his, his father, my great grandfather was the one who came over like that generation on my dad's side was the first to arrive in the States. And, uh, so they struggled and they had to like, really like my, my grandfather worked an eight hour day before noon. Uh, Wow. And I carry that. Like, I feel like some yeah. sense, I mean, I feel some sense of pride in a weird way in that, but I also. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's pretty badass actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or, you know, he, yeah. he, he did what he could, but I, I also feel, I, I sometimes feel like a certain panic. <laughs> uh-huh. um, do you know what I'm saying? Like the, the panic of the immigrant trying to make yeah. it. Um, I don't think. Yeah. That, that's yeah. In, in a blood. world that isn't. Yeah. Yeah. In a world that isn't totally his. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that it is in our blood. I mean, I think that we carry those things. Yeah, there's like echoes of it, you know, because right. not to get too, uh, uh, you know, we, you know, not the what mystical about it or whatever. But I mean, like you say, I mean, it's not even mystical; it's biological. Uh, like his DNA is my DNA. Like I am him yeah. in some sort of real yeah. way. So it would yeah. make it would make sense that you sort of carry those echoes of your ancestors in your own mind and soul or spirit or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, something I read, I was reading, I was reading about you. I was doing background research on you and there's something you said that I want to actually read back to you, uh, and then talk about with you where I hope uh, you're not going to embarrass me, Brad. No, no, this shouldn't be too embarrassing. Uh, you said when someone asked you, uh, about why you wrote this book, you know, if you, I mean, which is like a tough question to answer. You said something I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, you said, I think I was interested in stories about people trying to hold on to what they've lost and also the way that uh, what has been lost and left behind can still exert a hold over someone long after the fact. Um, And so, you know, I guess this begs the question for me, um, you know, were you working through loss or anything like that when you were writing this book? Was this a personal thing or were you trying to maybe reckon or or was it more the case that you were trying to reconcile those sorts of feelings and experiences uh, on behalf of, uh, say, your parents or your ancestors? You know, or, or, oh, was it, or was it both? Um, you know what I'm saying? Or was it both? Like, what was driving you? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, well, so I'm going to answer your question in parts, I think. But in terms of trying to reconcile something for yourself as, as opposed to trying to reconcile something for your parents or your grandparents, I don't, I don't know that I think it's possible to reconcile something for someone else. But I, I also think that in the way that you said you carry this panic of your grandfather in your blood, I think we carry the losses. Um, 
of our history and our blood as well, right? I mean, children care so much about what their parents or what their grandparents have lost, right? Right. And um, and then it becomes your your own loss, I, I think, as a as a child. But um, to answer the first part of your question, I I don't I don't know that I was trying to work through any actual specific loss that, you know, like my parents lost or that my grandparents lost. I I think it was, even when I was, you know, so I first wanted to be a writer when I was like eight or nine years old and I would write these poems. And even, even when I was eight or nine years old, the poems I wrote were mourning the loss of the seasons. And when I was 12, I was mourning the loss of my own childhood innocence, you know, and (laughs) It's, but I think for for me, writing has always been an act of trying to hold on. And even though this is a novel and it's um, it's not at all about my life, like the novel itself, I, I think you know the characters are still trying to hold on. And in that way, I guess I was working through my own desire um, or my own need to hold on to things or my own nostalgia for what's been lost. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. And it, and, and it also brings to mind, um, you know, another kind of related element uh, to your story and to just like any human story. And, and uh, I'm talking about like uh, the role that history plays and these events, you know, particularly in, in terms of the Korean experience and the dividing of the country, um, <laughs> you know, anywhere you live, any, you know, whatever nationality you are, uh, you know, there is... A, a part of your identity that is shaped by these big events, you know, and it's something yeah. that it's something that you don't necessarily think about all the time because it's such a part of uh, who you are and it, it kind of operates at a subtle level. But, um, you know, it, this makes me think of it and it makes me ponder it, you know, its role in my own life, you know, like, and the big one most recently is like, you know, that you can just point to and start to think about how it's maybe shaped how you view the world or how you operate in your daily life is uh nine eleven, you know, like just yeah. as like just as like a major event. But like these things that happen, you know, they, they happen and they're they're big and they're emotional and you feel them, you know, in a very visceral way. Uh but then they recede into the past. And when they recede into the past they sort of recede into your own uh sense of your own personal history and you don't necessarily think about them uh consciously uh every day or anything, but they're always there. <laughs> You know, right, right, right. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I feel like you know, there, we also don't think about the ways in which nine eleven changed the environment in which we live, right? So there's like the level of how it affects you personally, and then there's there's this like other level that's even harder to get at, which is how the world changes around you because of an event like that, and how that changes your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like yeah. I mean. The, the the ripple effect is sort of like uh, mind-boggling, you know. You almost, yeah, you can, yeah. You can almost go, you know, go into it infinitely. Um, but it's really fascinating yeah. to think about. And so, I guess that that you know that begs the question, um, you know, were there ways, you know, in the writing of this book, did you come to understand, um, you know, your parents and your family better, and in terms of like how the events uh, of their past and the in the in you know the historical events, you know, in particular, might have shaped them, and then as a you know by virtue of that shaped you? I mean, do, do you feel like you have a greater clarity? Yeah, that's such a tricky question to answer because the things that happen to the family in this book are, are quite different from the, from, from what my family went through 
like on a specific level, I guess. Right. So this family in the book, um, they run away from Korea. They have to leave Korea for political reasons. They're sort of in exile. My parents came to America in search of the American dream. Right. They were they were students, um, and my dad became a professor. And so I feel. But on this other level, like. Yes, definitely, right? Because I was writing about immigrants and what it feels like to suddenly feel out of place and to struggle um, in the way that immigrants always struggle, in the way that your grandfather struggled. And I think that that was enlightening to me, um, but but in maybe a more sideways kind of way than than I am writing about, you know, real things that happened and coming to understand them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like you, you weren't working. I mean, you were, every piece of art, I think, has some autobiographical element to it, but this is, yeah. you know, this is not one of those novels that's like a kind of a one-for-one, almost memoir novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that I came to, you know, maybe more than coming to understand my parents, I, I think I came more to understand myself. Um, and in that way that you were talking about earlier too, where it's like, you know, three years later, I, I, I finally understand like who I was. Um, and I, I think that it helped me understand kind of, you know, and I sometimes think that every piece of art is autobiographical, but not of your life, um, but of your mind, right? I feel like every piece of art is kind of like an autobiography of the mind. And so I think by writing the book, I figured out kind of what my issues were, what I was interested in working out, um, or what I got stuck on. Um, and that helped me understand a lot of, still a lot of things about my own life. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to talk too, uh, cause this fascinates me, uh, about this book and how it was almost lost. Uh, oh. you had, yeah, this is like, <laughs> I got like, I got, I broke out into a cold sweat when I read this, but I was also like, why did you not have this backed up on a disc, but like, this was like what happened to Ernest Hemingway, uh, with his early papers. I don't know if you ever heard that story, but, um, yes, yes, I've heard that story. That, it's yeah. a terrible story. Yeah. Almost, I think that yeah. like, it kind of sort of, and, and, and he had an excuse, which was computers didn't exist back then. Yeah. So, but that, um, that sort of catalyzed, I think the breakup of his first marriage. I mean, he took it hard, <laughs> you know, like, so, uh, well, yes. And, and yes, as well, he should have, um, yeah, I would have also taken it hard. So I had, um, so what happened was I, I had printed out a draft of my book and then I hand edited everything and my hand edits are pretty intense. Like when I told you that I threw away, or I threw away probably 700 pages, um, and it might be closer to a thousand to tell the truth, but I, I do that all by hand editing, right? So I'll hand, I'll, I'll cross out a page and rewrite an entire page on the back or, I'll scribble all over the margins, but anyone who has seen um, my manuscript after this has happened knows that like everything is different. Like like at least two thirds of every page is is covered, um, especially early on in the process. Not with every revision, but but I was sort of early on in the process, and I had printed out um, a draft and written all over it. And so I was going to make photocopies, um, but I hadn't yet. So I was carrying it around with me everywhere, and one day I just I was I was really tired, <laughs> and the the train came and I got up, and I left the manuscript on the bench and I got on the train and I knew, as the doors were closing, that I had left my manuscript that I that I had actually just finished and I was carrying it around so that I could make photocopies of it, um, and then it was, 
and then I, and then, you know, the train left and I got off on the next stop and I came back and I went back to where I had left it and it was no longer there. Oh. And I went to the lost and found and it wasn't there. And then I started, you know, kind of looking through trash cans and just really freaking out because it was, it was months and months and months of work. And I just knew that, um, it, it just wasn't, you know, the, the draft that I had saved was not, was no longer, right. was just no longer the book. And, uh, this, this girl saw me basically <laughs> peering into trash cans and she said, did you leave a manuscript behind? Oh. And she had, she had saved it. Um, and she said, you know, I could tell that someone had put a lot of work into it. And so, um, actually we ended up riding the train together and, and I am grateful to Elaine Wakuka Hurt for the rest of my life. I was going to say, you, did you did you weep and hug this woman? Did you? <laughs> I think I just sat down. I mean, I think it was like kind of beyond the the weeping. Um, I just was. I was like, oh my god, it was it was so sh- shocking that I had that I had lost it. And then I made photocopies. Um, then I made photocopies, and and it was all, you know, it was all okay. But I had that moment of. I just had this terrible moment where I thought I I can't I can't go on if <laughs> if I've lost this draft I will just give up. <laughs> um, okay, and so I want to. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm glad that it all worked out. That's like a really you know, uh, that's a uh, intense story. Like as a writer, I can relate to that because I have those. Yeah, fears. yeah. Like, and that that actually yeah. played out in my mind. It was terrible, but. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really bad. <laughs> I, I want to know, uh, you know, you've touched on this earlier just briefly, but I want to hear more about uh, your childhood. Like, when did your, you, you were born here, correct? Yes, yes. Okay, and you were raised in Michigan? Yeah, so I was born in Evanston, uh, where my dad was a graduate student at Northwestern. And then we moved to upstate New York, and then we moved to New Jersey, and then we moved to Michigan. Okay. So I mean like how, what, which is where I went to high school and middle school. Okay. And um you know I was reading something about you you were talking about uh you know your integration into uh this like private Christian school and Oh yes. Yeah, like talk about that because you know you here you are you're this uh you know are you first generation American? I I I've had this conversation previously. I never understand how to, how the numbers work. Like if I don't really understand how you count it either. <laughs> I feel like you're first I feel like you're first generation. I mean, I feel like I've always called myself second generation, um, but I don't know how that separates me from my brother because my brother was born in Korea, but he moved to America when he was six months old. Um, So I I think he might be first generation or one and a half generation, and that's very confusing to me. Yeah, it's very Um, confusing. But let's just say let's just say you're second generation, but you you know you're this uh, you're you're Korean American and you're in this private. Christian school, and you were raised Buddhist, is that correct? I mean, in, in, a, in a formal way? Yeah. Or? Well, you, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like to be raised Buddhist is, is a different thing to be raised almost any kind of religion, because um, it, it, feel, it feels different somehow. I mean, I, having also gone to church and stuff, like it, I feel like the Buddhists are pretty chill about it. Yeah. So yeah. even when I say I was raised Buddhist, I guess what I mean is I was raised in a Buddhist household. But you know, you're not told like believe in this or the, it's it's slightly, slightly it felt slightly different. Okay, but so what did um, it look like? Because I, I you know, if I had to pick a religion, I don't have a religion, but if I had to pick one, I would pick Buddhism. Just like you know, that's the one that that registers with me more than the others. 
But what is it? Yeah. What what was it like? I mean, did you do anything? Was there any structure to it? Like you went to temple or anything like that, or did you have to meditate as a kid, or was it just sort of like? Yeah, I mean, I, so I was I was taught how to meditate um, in case I wanted to do it, <laughs> and we would go to temple occasionally. And when we went to temple, we would you know light incense in front of the Buddhas who who sit at the front of the temple um, or the icons of the Buddhas, and then we would we would bow. Um, and sometimes it would be chanting and sometimes they would be meditating. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, we would just kind of run around and the, the temple we went to had this giant, giant sort of field. And so we would just go outside and play while the adults were doing that. Um, and you know, so I was, I was taught to do those things, but, but it, it didn't feel required. See. If that makes sense, it, it felt like something we could do or not. That sounds fantastic. Um, That's what I wish I would have had. I was raised Catholic. <laughs> I had no choice. I had to go and like do confession and all that stuff. It was right, 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 right. That's why when I say I was raised Buddhist, it's like yeah, you know, I was raised by Buddhists or around Buddhists. But see, that's the thing. Yeah, it was. That's why I like the Buddhists. They don't proselytize. It's not even really a religion. It's just like a psychology. That's how it strikes me anyway, at its best. I think it's also religion. I think in the West it feels like psychology. I think in the and I think that part of it was that I was raised Buddhist in America. Yeah. So there were yeah, but yeah, I mean I think for me it feels yeah, like philosophy in some way, right? Yeah, that's right. Maybe that's a better um, word than psychology. It just it doesn't feel like uh like I always, you know, uh, I always say there's no like uh superhuman sky god or anything like that. It's just like some dude who did this and I don't know. I, I find that comforting, like at least. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in Buddhism, right? There's there's the idea that everyone can do that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like right. you you can be Jesus is essentially the deal, and like yeah, like you can be yeah. su- you can be Superman too, <laughs> if you work really yeah, hard. Yeah, if you if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, if if you, you want. want. If that's in the cards. Yeah. So. So take me then, like, to your school experience. Like, you know, was it, it sounds like it was somewhat difficult. I mean, it, it's, you know, this anecdote that I'm referring to is, like, where your um, teacher, right. you know, uh, well, you can tell the story. I mean, you know, but it's. Yeah, so when I first went to school, I went to this private school because my parents um, had been told that this was sort of the best school to send children to. And um, So I went, and it was a Christian school. And, you know, I say I was raised Buddhist, but at that point, like, I didn't, even understand that I was Buddhist. I'd been going to temple and I'd been seeing people, but nobody had said, you know, you are Buddhist. I, I didn't understand maybe the concept of religion, but then suddenly I was in a school that was, that was Christian. And um, and I didn't know anything about Christ or or, or religion, like I said. And so, um, and I, I didn't really speak English. And so there were like a lot of ways in which I, I totally didn't fit in and was really bewildered and didn't know what was going on. And as I learned English, uh, my teacher would make me stand at the front of the room while my whole class prayed for me because she had discovered that I didn't know about Christianity. And she told me that I was going to hell and that my family was going to hell. And so as a class, my my my, my teacher and my and the other students would, would pray for my family um, to be saved. I mean, I, I think yeah. that I think that might be like the height of evil. I mean, or just like not evil, but like just misguided, <laughs> just misguided stupidity. Because I had uh, like catechism teacher. It's called CCD in, in Catholicism. It's like you know Sunday school essentially. And I'll never forget because I was like I, as a kid, I always say this: like uh, I was not one of those kids who was smarter than the adults in my life. 
Uh, you uh-huh. know, I was one of those kids who believed, at least to a certain age, everything the adults in my life told me. Like, I trusted them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah, me I, too. I remember I had this catechism teacher who, in retrospect, uh, was a complete moron. And, you know, and like, she had no business teaching children yeah. about, like, the, the fundamental questions of existence and spirituality. But, like, that is what she had been entrusted with. And she, right. you know, I remember going into that class and, you know, she's telling me that, like, if you have sex before marriage, it's a cardinal sin that God will never forgive you for. And you're going to burn in hell and Satan, and, you know, I mean, all yeah. this stuff. And I'm like, I cannot believe, A, that my parents subjected me to that. Um, <laughs> it, that's garbage. I mean, really and truly. Yeah. I mean, and then B, uh, that this could even be allowed where these people uh, could be allowed to tell children this this stuff. It's just it's it's completely uh, obnoxious to me. And uh I look back on yeah. it sort of aghast, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the great tragedies of childhood is that um, irresponsible people um, end up taking charge of these children who are, who are, who are totally willing and trusting um, and will believe what, they're, believe what they're told, whether it's true or not. And then I, I think that that tragedy carries on into adulthood, right? Like how many of us, again, carry that sort of, trauma with us um and you know like i think it's surmountable for sure but also it's still it's still there i'm still bitter about um, it in case you can't yes, can, can tell, tell. <laughs> yeah yeah i can tell well you know and you should be bitter about it i, I think right it's it's i'm just frustrated i mean i'll correct it with my own child and like i don't think you know i, I wrestle with this a lot because i have a lot of problems with organized religion but um I'm not one of those people who thinks it should go away. I just think it, it would. I think it should change. You know, I think there needs to be reform. I think it's too rigid. And right, I, I think right, there's, there right. are positive aspects of it, like the community aspect, and you know, people. I, you know, to, to people are trying to answer the fundamental question of like how to live and why are we here, and like, you know, I can. I'm sympathetic to the idea that like they would want to do that in the context of a church, but like we need to evolve the thing, you know, or create a new form of it or something, you know, it just seems like to sit there and tell well, these... I think, yeah, I think religion itself is not the problem. I think that we just as people, we need to behave better um, and, and probably be kinder. I remember when Marilyn Robinson came to speak when I was a student at Cornell and she talked about, you know, she, she I think she, she gave a talk and she talked about how you know, like liberal or radical Christians needed to step up and make people aware that that there there were these people, right? That that the, that that everybody needs to to sort of be in conversation in a certain kind of way, or to engage with religion. I mean, I I don't have a problem with religion, but I do have I, I do have a problem with. Um, the relig- with the religious, <laughs> there's a difference, you know, it's like the, I don't know, it's the people and it's the, uh, it's so complicated. Yeah, but you know, when people are religious and, and, and good to one another, right. When I, I, I feel like that's, that's a good thing, but when, uh, but there are, there are other, there are other sides to it. Well, yeah, no. And it's like, that's the, that's exactly right. I mean, I feel, I feel like it can, it can have this positive impact, but then where I get stuck, you know, especially is uh, just with the dogma, just with the stories that we tell ourselves. And, like, that, yeah. I feel like uh, I always call, like, uh, any kind of, like, superhuman God, I always call those things conversation enders. And so, like, you know, when you talk about Marilyn Robinson, who, who is one of the best writers uh, when it comes to writing about this stuff, you know, she's, like, so lucid about it. But it's like, you know, when you when you have a God like that, you know, then you're in a situation where um, if you get into any kind of conflict or disagreement, 
and you get to the point where you're both referring to your sky gods, it's just like, that's the end of the story because that's Superman and you know, you know what I'm saying? And like, there's nothing else to yeah, talk yeah. about. It's, and so I think that, and, that part of it frustrates me. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing I love about Marilyn Robinson is that she's deeply engaged with, um, like her characters are deeply engaged with their gods, right? They're, they're talking to their gods. They're arguing with their gods. They're not presuming to know what, what their gods, um, or what their God, I guess. Um, beliefs, right? They're, they're constantly struggling to try to understand. And yeah. I, I feel like that's very different than, um, or they're constantly discovering that what they, what they thought was their understanding of what God wanted was wrong or that they were, you know, that they weren't, um, that they didn't, that they were wrong or they had, they had misinterpreted something and, and that it's this incredibly humbling experience for them. Um, and I'm, I'm totally down with that. Yeah, it's like an honest reckoning, you know, and I think it's, yeah. like, it's like healthy to try to engage those big questions. I think I just, yeah. yeah, I don't know, I have issues. I need I need to work them out on a full episode where I just talk for an hour to myself. <laughs> um, but uh, I would listen to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it might happen. You never know. But uh, so take me a little bit further through your childhood. Like, you know, you get to this point where you have this crazy teacher who's subjecting you to, you know, what is, I guess, some sort of form of abuse. Uh, you know, what, how did, when did you finally, or did you ever finally feel, um, comfortable? Like, did you switch schools and things changed or did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We switched schools or my parents took me out of that school as soon as they found out what was going on. Um, but it took them a while because, you know, as a kid, like you, like that's the thing that's so hard about being a kid. You don't know when to separate what's acceptable and what isn't right. I mean, and you don't tell your parents everything because there's the world at school and there's the world at home. And so my parents noticed that I was praying all the time, which <laughs> I think they probably thought was cute at first. Right. Um, but then they realized I was praying to save them from going, actually, it was really, I find this kind of interesting. Um, just after the fact, I was praying that, so I totally believed, um, in Christianity while, while I was at the school, you know, I, and it's, you know, and I, I, I believed in Jesus and all of this stuff, and it was such a, it's a very compelling and, and beautiful story in a lot of ways. And, um, but I also believed that my family was going to hell. Um, and I thought I would, I wouldn't, but I would go to heaven because, um, I, I believed in Christianity in this way that I thought would separate me from my family. And so I would, I would pray to God every night that I would, I could go to hell with my family should anything happen um (laughs) that's so heartbreaking i think i think when my parents figured that out they were like okay we're taking you out and we're sending you somewhere else and i actually recovered pretty quickly as children do right so it was once i was sort of out of the environment in which um i was freaked out all the time because i was being constantly reminded of the afterlife and of death and you know these like giant mortal questions that I don't know that children are terribly well equipped to handle uh, grappling with at that age. I, I was that happy. Yeah, no, it's always good when bad things happen to you when you're a kid because you can handle it. You know, it's like it's when they happen to you when you're an adult that you're really screwed. You know? like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like even like breaking a bone, right? Like when you break a bone and you're a kid, it's like, oh, it's already better. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Like I remember, yeah. I remember, like this is the truth. I remember wanting a cast. Like I, yeah. wa- I wanted to break yeah, my yeah, arm yeah, when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah, like, so everyone could sign in yeah. and you could be like that kid. Yeah. yeah, and like I mean, to the point where I remember, like I would like fall and like have like like the, I mean the <laughs> most minor pain in my arm, and I would in- insist that my mom put an ace bandage on my arm. I remember that, um, just as sort awesome. of like sort of like a, a faux cast. You know, it was as close as I ever came. So, you know, knock on wood, I, I never broke my arm, but 
Um, so, you know, then you go to a different school and, uh, things are better. And then you said you wanted to, you, you knew that you wanted to be a writer when you were like eight or nine, uh, yeah. which is like the most common refrain that I hear on with everybody that I talk to on this show. Like people know early that they want to be writers more often than not. Um, so yeah. what was your, like, what were you like as a kid? Were you, I mean, you were obviously kind of a bookworm. Yeah, it was a total bookworm. Um, yeah, I I would I would read at night under the covers with a flashlight, and my parents would tell me I was ruining my eyes. And I would read basically everywhere I went. I had a book with me, um, but I was also I don't know I you know I was also like kids were back then where we played outdoors all the time, right? Like I remember we got our first Nintendo when I was in fourth grade, but it wasn't at all like the way that I feel children grow up now. Uh, we watched hardly any television. We're always like running around in the neighborhood, riding bikes. That yeah, sort of. so that sounds like my, I mean, you're, where in Michigan were you? Uh, Okemos, Michigan, which is close to East Lansing, which is... Where Michigan State is, close okay. To, yeah. Yeah, okay. Close I, to... <laughs> I was, uh, I was, you know, I spent the, like, the early part of my youth in, in uh, Milwaukee, in suburban Milwaukee, and it was so much the same. Uh-huh. Like, I remember we just, I mean, we were just outside all the time, and it was like... My friend's pa- parents had a bell. They literally had a bell on their house. Yes, yes, yes. And then everyone would run home at a certain time, yeah. right? And then you would all run out after dinner and like play Ghost in the Graveyard. Or yes, Ghost in the Graveyard. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think back on those 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 times really fondly. Like I loved growing up there, and I think about that now. I think about my daughter. I'm in Los Angeles. Like uh, it, she's not playing Ghost in the Graveyard in Hollywood. I can guarantee you. That. No, 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 no. Yeah. So it's just you know it's yeah. kind of kind of like. Uh, there's something sort of uh, idyllic about those memories, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was so much fun. Uh, so okay, so when uh, you, you know, in high school, you, you know, you went through high school. Were you uh, what kind of kid were you? Did you have like a good experience, or were you really uh, angsty and uh, tortured, or what was the deal? I think both. Um, so I mean, I actually really loved high school. It was it was it was a fun experience for me. Um, and, you know, if I were angsty, I think I was privately angsty. I'm not entirely sure that anyone else in my high school would have thought I was angsty. Yeah. But but high school, yeah, high school was good. Middle school was a little bit rough, um, which I think is often the case. And, I, think, I think I peaked in eighth grade. I always say that. That was the best year of my existence. And I, 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 what, I don't know. What happened in eighth grade? I don't know. I was just happy. I had a good time. I got good grades. My friends and I had fun. Life was easy. I have no idea why I've decided on that, but like I feel really confident that that was it. Like and everything since then has been has been an anticlimax. But I just had fun, and and in my school, uh, you know, it was like sixth through ninth grade. So there was like one grade above us, but we weren't the youngest anymore. And oh, you know what? So I did. Um, I, I worked at a think tank right after college, and um, I did. I studied this. <laughs> Um, oh no! Studied... What you... Now I'm, I feel a, a, a feeling of dread. No, 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 no you're fine. Over. You're in good shape. Oh, okay. You're you're totally in good shape. Okay. But um, so what I studied was middle school configurations. So you know, like there used to be junior high and senior high. I'm totally getting off topic here. Um, and and then it switched to middle school. And middle school is six through eight, right? Hmm. And um, yours is different because it's six through ninth. But what we found in the study was that six through eight. Like that configuration is like the most difficult and most problematic of all middle school configurations. And so the students within 
that sort of grade configuration will have the most problems. But in your grade configuration, um, it's it's somehow like the students do better. I think six through eight is when um, people like students are going or kids are going through a lot of changes and um, they're like if if it's six through eight they're they're like suddenly severed from elementary school. Um, and then they're also separated from, like, sort of the greater responsibilities, I guess, that comes with high school. So you had kind of a more traditional, I think, junior high experience. Um, but I, I'm babbling now. But I, I just thought, like, I bet, I bet that was part of it, that your school was probably, because it was 6 through ninth instead of 6 through eight. Like, it, it actually makes a difference in how kids interact with each other. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean... This is sort of a corny way of thinking about it, but I just feel like, you know, my, my general sensibility and sense of humor has just always sort of been adolescent and probably uh-huh. always will be. And, like, that was just when it found, like, it, my, that was when I think my age and my sensibility just, like, matched up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you say that, something you said earlier, just try, you, you were part of a think tank? Yeah, yeah. I worked at um, the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica oh, right wow. after college. What is that involved? What does a think tank involve? Do you just, I mean... I mean, it, it it invites all these sort of uh, lame jokes about people just like sitting around and thinking, and uh, I just like give, yeah, give me yeah. a visual. Like, what was it like? I mean, you, you're in a room with people, or are you just like are you you hired to just sort of go off on your own? Or, like, how does it work? So, yeah, so it's an awful lot like a university, really. Um, it's a lot of people, um, a lot of researchers that and and sort of academic researchers in an organization trying to solve problems um so but yeah you know I, I shared an office with somebody a lot of you know the researchers have their own office it was really nice I loved living in Santa Monica um and I loved working at Rand because it was kind of intellectual and laid back and um everybody was working <clears throat> on interesting stuff mostly policy related things um and so I was working on a bunch of education policy projects while I was there and it was, yeah, and so it was just, you know, they would come up with a, someone, a senior researcher or somebody would come up or a principal investigator, I just said principal, a principal investigator would come up with a question they wanted to ask, um, you know, like, like middle school configurations or, um, you know, why is there a shortage of principals um, and how can we fix that? Right. That's uh, so questions like that. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really, really fun. It was... I, I think it's. I think if I weren't a writer, that would be sort of the ideal environment for me. It would be. It, it was just. I remember that as an incredibly happy time. Oh, interesting. So you went to University of Chicago, and then you went to Cornell for to get your MFA. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay, and then and, and then you worked on this book while you were at Cornell, and then for you know it took you four years total. Is that the timeline? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, the what about the sales process? Did it did it uh, did it go pretty quickly, or was it like a torturous, you know, phase of like multiple <laughs> rejections before it finally happened? So actually, the sale the sale process was strangely the smoothest part of it. I think you know, like I felt like the writing was so difficult, and then I felt that it was it was hard um, and really nerve wracking to find an agent. But then my agent Maria Massey, when we finally signed with each other, I remember her telling me this was going to be fun. And I remember thinking, she's crazy. How, <laughs> how could how could this ever be fun? I mean, because, you know, it's it's so hard for so many people. But then I, I think the book um, 
sold, like it went to auction and sold like a, a week and a half or two weeks after she sent it out. So it was just really fast. I think within a week I knew that there was interest. Um, and, and then it was done. And I, I thought, gosh, I wish I believed her when she said it was going to be fun because I had been sort of biting my nails and flipping out. Um, and then, although I actually didn't, yeah, so I didn't even really have enough time to work myself up into the normal anxious froth, but, right. um, that part of it was just really, really nice. Well, so, and then where are you now with the process? Cause now the book is making its way out into the world and you're doing readings and doing interviews and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do you feel about this part of it? Are you enjoying it or is it an anxious time or? You know, I thought I would be really anxious and, and that it would be terrible, but it's been really fun. I have really enjoyed talking to people like you um, and meeting, you know, people who are into books. It's, it's just been really nice so far. Wow. Well, I, uh, I congratulate you on a fantastic book and a great launch to your publishing career. And uh, I wish you all the best going forward. And we'll be interested to see uh, what you come up with, uh, you know, as far as future books are concerned. Thanks so much, Brad. It's been really fun talking to you. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the show. That's Catherine Chung. Go get her novel. It's called Forgotten Country. It's out from Riverhead Books, wherever novels are sold. Uh, if you want to find her on the web, the address is katherinechung.com. That's Catherine with a C. She's on Twitter, and her handle there is at Chung underscore Catherine. She also has a Facebook presence. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. You can check them out at valleyjones.com. And hey, if you get a second and you like the program and it's a, it's a positive experience for you, please go to iTunes and give it a good rating and a nice little review. It takes two minutes of your life. Please do this. It helps the cause. I would certainly appreciate it. Otherwise, final thoughts. Uh, trying to wrap this up into a satisfying conclusion. Uh, dancing with a bullwhip in public. I got to say, I do kind of like that. I like seeing things I've never uh, never seen before. And, you know, you also have to realize that when you crack a whip, a real bullwhip, uh, an industrial strength bullwhip, it sounds like a gunshot a little bit. So it's very loud and it will arrest your attention. And uh, this particular gentleman in the park today was very skilled and uh, had mastered the technique. So it was interesting. And uh, otherwise, I don't mean to bitch, uh, you know, about my book too much. I feel a little bit guilty about that. I am having fun with it. I'm enjoying the writing. It's just, uh, you know, when I try to think about what to talk about on this show, uh, I do have to turn to my own life and my daily existence and, uh, you know, what's relevant or at least semi-relevant and uh, a, a POV issue with a novel does feel somewhat relevant and uh, germane with a G, not with a J. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got. I'm going to bid you farewell right now, right here. Please remember that St. Francis of Assisi found it amusing that his own deathbed was infested with mice and that E.E. E. Cummings died after chopping firewood. This listening experience is over with. It has now reached its natural conclusion. I hope that's okay with you. I have to go uh, do stuff. So please enjoy the rest of your day and proceed in a lighthearted, casual manner. Breathe deep, in through the nose, out through the mouth. Or in through the nose, out through the nose. It doesn't really matter to me.